You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. As we get closer to the end of the election season here in the United States, I think we would all agree this has been a most extraordinary election cycle. I'm using diplomatic language there as a former diplomat. The U.S. is still in midst of a pandemic, which has caused a rapid and seismic shift in how Americans will vote. At least three quarters of all American voters are now eligible to receive a mail ballot for the 2020 election. My guest today is one of the leaders of the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections Project. He and his colleagues have been working very hard over the past several months to make it possible to have a free and fair election and a healthy election in November. Nate Persley is a professor at the Stanford Law School. He's also co-director of FSI's Cyber Policy Center. He's got about three dozen other titles that I'm not gonna mention right now. But the one we wanna talk about most particularly, Nate, is the project that you've launched with MIT. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Let's start first with mail-in ballots and then talk about healthy elections on election day and before election day. Our president has repeatedly claimed that voting by mail is illegitimate. He talks about fraud all the time. Do you agree with this assessment? I really believe that the debate over mail balloting is actually over for this reason. The only sort of system of balloting that the president says is controversial is where you mail out ballots unsolicited to the population. Now we are doing that in Washington and Oregon and Colorado and Nevada and California, but most of the battleground states, you have absentee voting, basically the same way that the president has voted. And he has said that Florida has a safe and secure and in some ways optimal system for balloting, the one that he uses. And that's the one that's used in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin. So really, there is no considerable fraud in absentee balloting, and the only issue is whether everybody can vote in the same way that the president does. So when we hear that there were ballots in New York sent out that were wrongly labeled or ballots in a ditch, what are they referring to when they make those kind of comments? So just because there isn't fraud doesn't mean there aren't problems. And we all need to, well, we all, and we need to be sort of clear eyed about yeah. the challenges that absentee balloting poses for states that don't have experience with it. We here in California and most of the states in the West have had the majority of voters casting ballots by mail for some time. But in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and North Carolina, where they've had absentee ballot rates of 5% or so, making the transition to massive absentee balloting comes with significant growing pains. And we are asking these states to make what is the most fundamental change to their election infrastructure in the space of about four months. And so- That's where you get the problems of mismatched ballots and of voters not receiving them, problems with the mail service, problems with the returning of these ballots. And we should expect that there are going to be problems like that in this election. We're seeing it already. The election is already underway. Over 5 million people have already voted. And we should expect that there's going to be challenges in the mail balloting process. There always are, but there's renewed concern because of the epidemic. The counting of the mail-in ballots, what are your greatest concerns about that process? Well, I don't think the actual counting of the ballots, if we were living in a normal sort of rule-bound environment where norms of fair play were respected by both sides, that that would be as big a problem. But given how polarized we are and how there's a kind of take no prisoners sort of attitude among the lawyers in these cases, what concerns me 
in particular is massive challenges to absentee ballots for either technical or even non-technical reasons. And so uh, we at the Healthy Elections Project have done a lot of work on, for example, signature verification. And so the way that we do stop fraud in the mail balloting process is by verifying signatures on ballots with what the signature is on file. That's what I'm worried about. There's all kinds of other buckets of ballots that could be disputed. And in a close election, we should expect, you know, considerable amount of litigation. We'll come back to counting in a minute, but I wanted the secondly to talk about voting in person, as you already said, that's already happening in many states. What are your biggest concerns about the process and the health implications of people voting in person? So one thing that we've really worked on the Healthy Elections Project is poll worker recruitment because we are losing hundreds of thousands of poll workers this year. Hundreds of thousands? Hundreds of thousands because the average age of a poll worker is over 60 and they're at most risk for contracting the virus. And so there's a whole new crop of poll workers that has needed to be recruited. This is something we've been working on, and and in particular, our partner Power of the Polls has been leading this effort. And everyone should sign up to be a poll worker at powerofthepolls.org. And what we've tried to do is try to replace that dwindling pool of poll workers. And I think that there's been a lot that sort of, I mean, something that's to be celebrated, there's volunteer activity to, to staff the polls. However, that means you're gonna have a lot of novice poll workers working under incredibly tense conditions this year with new challenges posed by the pandemic, let alone the possibilities of election day violence and the like. And so those are the things that concern me in the polling place, the stressful situation that we're all under and will only be more intense for poll workers who are trying to guide people through the process. And yet you think it is possible for people to vote in a healthy way, right? I mean, Absolutely. Not all, I mean, they're doing it now and you will have at least 40% of Americans will cast their ballot in person, whether that's an early voting station or in person on election day. And we should encourage them to do so. It's no more dangerous than everything else we're doing outside. And, and everybody who has, you know, all the election officials are acutely aware of how to adapt their polling places to make sure there's no risk of contagion. This is also something we've been working with with the Stanford Design School. We have a guide to healthy polling places that we put up and put in the hands of election officials. That's fantastic work. By the way, we'll post that with this podcast for people that want to see that work. Tell us a little bit about some of your other concerns at this moment. We're in the late stages, as you already said, we're already voting. But in terms of your projects, some of the research that you've been doing, things that American voters should know about. Well, so there were concerns that preceded the pandemic, and then there are those concerns that are then exacerbated by the So the concern, things like, as we've done in the Cyber Policy Center at FSI, issues of disinformation, issues of cybersecurity, none of that, those issues have gone away. And frankly, there are reasons to think that there are new vulnerabilities as a result of all this new equipment that has been bought in order to deal with mail balloting. Just yesterday, the Florida voter registration system went down on the last day when people could vote in Florida. And no no evidence that that was a hack, but it just speaks to the issue of the cyber infrastructure. Wait, on that point, was it an overextension? Was it overloaded? I'm just curious. That's what they say, but we don't don't know. know. I mean, these are massive systems and, you know, they make mistakes. And that's going to be true with everything. I mean, when you see this with the mistaken addresses and mail balloting. Right. Right. 
it's not necessarily something nefarious, but it's really difficult to get all these parts right. The other concerns I have, look, there, there are the COVID-specific concerns, and then there are the political concerns that are unique to our environment. So on COVID, I think we are now in a good place when it comes to the number of polling places, number of poll workers. I am concerned about poll worker training and right. the point of contact with voters. Because of recent events in the last few weeks and, and the effort to recruit all of these poll observers, I am concerned like I've never been before about issues of violence in polling places, but we don't want to overstate that because while we want to draw attention to the possibility, we don't want people to be afraid to vote. So it's something that law enforcement in different states have to pay attention to. And then I am concerned about how we think of, if it is a close election, how we think about the late count and how we all have to be patient in the days following the election to make sure that the election officials can do their job and that the rule of law you know, is applied because it's not as if this is the first time that we've had elections that have gone into overtime. We here in California are used to congressional races being called several weeks after the election, and we need to become accustomed to that in the presidential realm as well. Let's go into detail on a couple of the lists that you had. You, you have a lot of lists of concerns. It must be hard for you to sleep these days, Nate, but we all should have these concerns. I don't mean to joke about it. And uh, the fact that you're trying to contribute to it with the project with MIT, I, I really applaud that effort. Let's go through a couple of them in a little more detail, though, because most people haven't thought as systematically as you have about them. Tell our listeners about this phrase, poll watchers. I have served actually abroad as an international election observer in places like Russia and Morocco. And now was, you know, different countries have different rules for what external actors can do. What are the rules here in the United States that I'm assuming the rules are all different all over the place with respect to outside actors serving in a, what I would think would be a good thing to have observers, but if they show up to intimidate people, that might be a bad thing. That's right. I, there's a fine line between observation and intimidation, but it's the critical line that needs to be drawn. As you say, look, poll ob observation is part of election transparency. You want to make sure that people can see what's happening in the polling place to make sure there are no shenanigans going on. But the responsibility of those folks is to observe and to report if something goes awry, not to propagandize voters or intimidate them in a particular way. And so each state has different rules on how you deal with election observers. In some states, you have to be registered as an election observer. It has to be coming from the parties or the campaigns. From uh, the some parties. States, That's interesting. I didn't well, know in some states, you can, you can have third parties that, that do it. Right. You sort of outside groups. And then there are rules as to where they can stand, right? They obviously can't look over the voter's shoulder when they're voting. They'll be some distance away from the check-in station and the like to make sure that there's no fraud going on and the like. What's happened in this election is that there's been this kind of panoply of what we'll just say are sort of informal groups that might get involved in poll observation of some kind or another. But these extend from kind of protesters who are just going to be yelling from a safe distance to people who might sort of have an impact on the vote or intimidate voters. And we need to make sure that we draw a line to make sure that latter stuff doesn't happen. Right. And then the other one on your list I wanted to dig into a little bit more is counting the votes. And I was going to say election day, but we can't use that word anymore because there's been voting up to election day. Just walk everybody through like how it normally works. Who's actually in charge of deciding who got what votes, and then talk a little bit more about your concerns about that process as it most likely will, at least in certain states and maybe even some important states for deciding the election, drag on well beyond election night. There are basically 
two or three models that states follow when it comes to the counting of the votes. In many states, the votes are actually counted and tabulated first in the polling place itself. So that you will have some people who will, you know, who are in the polling place that will then report the totals. That's just the initial tabulation though. Then there are some counties where the tabulation will actually happen in a central facility. And a place like Wisconsin, for example, you have some counties doing it in the polling place, you have some places like Milwaukee doing it in a central facility. And then there's some that are kind of a hybrid in between where you'll have maybe the election day vote counted in the precinct, in the polling place, and then the absentee ballots will be counted at a central facility. So you can imagine how that would be important things. this time around. But that's just the initial tabulation. Right. Then, then there's what we call the next Canvas. Pardon me? Yeah, take us, take us through the steps. It's and so And so that, that is where you're going to get some of these initial results that the news media will report out and the like. But then over the succeeding weeks, and it takes weeks, everybody needs to understand, it has always taken weeks to do the canvas to then basically count every vote, usually at a central location in the county, that then becomes the certified vote total. Now, what we've just described, it's just the counting of the ballots. There is also, when we talk about mail balloting, there's the processing of them, right? Where, we, where right. before a ballot can be counted, it has to be decided to be legal, right? right? So there are certain categories of ballots like mail ballots or provisional ballots, which right. have to sort of be adjudicated in one way or another. With mail ballots, it's signatures to make sure that the signature matches what is on file. With provisional ballots, it could be all kinds of reasons. Provisional ballots are the kind of ballot you get if, for example, you show up at a polling place and you're not registered. Right. Or if there's some other problem with your identification and there's a way of resolving a dispute with that. So that's adjudication of the ballots themselves that then will put them in for counting with the rest of the ballots. Right. So once you have the counts at the county level, then what happens? So then they're reported to the Secretary of State's office and then they're aggregated. Like I said, there's, you sort of have to think about it at the initial tabulation stage and then at the canvas stage. One thing that I worry about from a cybersecurity perspective is that the information as it goes from the polling place to the county to the state reporting system, that's an opportunity for some hacking, some mischief. Now, right. that doesn't mean that they're changing actual votes, right? There's still in, in all the battleground states, there will be paper, paper backups of votes and the like. But you can imagine in this kind of disinformation environment, how rapid changes in the fortunes of, of candidates could be misinterpreted. But ultimately the ballots will be in a county facility in general. I mean, there's some differences here, but it'll be in a county facility where then a canvassing board does the canvas and does the final count, which is then certified as part of the state's certification of the ballot totals. Certified by the Secretary of State, correct? Yeah, or the chief election officer, it depends election on the state officer. what it is. Yeah, and, and we haven't even talked about litigation that inevitably happens. Well, I want, that was my next question. Yeah, tell, tell me what you're anticipating on that front. Well, so we, one of the things we developed at HealthyElections.org is a litigation tracker where we have over 350 cases that we are watching right now. And you can search it and we've got a really good kind of Google-ish interface there. These range from everything from signature matching to witness requirements to deadlines and the like. There's all kinds of litigation. But when we're talking about the counting itself, right, there's the stage at which you challenge voters the stage at which you challenge ballots, and then the stage at which you challenge the counts themselves. And right. so employers can get involved at each one of those stages. And it really just depends on how close it is, because when it's a close election and everybody thinks uh, every legal issue is going to be outcome determinative, they're going to end up challenging you know, the qualifications of ballots and voters as much as they think it'll be helping their campaign. 
Right. I've heard you use this slogan or something before about electoral folks that work on elections. They're, the they're election electoral administrator's prayer. prayer? Yeah, what is it? Tell, tell yeah, so the election administrator's prayer is, oh God, whatever happens, please don't let it be close. Right, and that's because in a close election, all the vulnerabilities in the election infrastructure seem outcome determinative. And you know right. that while right now everybody is preparing for a very contentious post-election period where we will everything will come down to absentee ballots in the Midwestern battleground states, and that is possible, and we should be prepared for the worst-case scenario. However, right. that's not the only <laughs> scenario out there, and it's possible we will even know you know, the day after the election, who won? And it really just depends on what we see happening in the early reporting states, places like Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Maine, New Hampshire, where we'll get a really good idea about who's winning the election. Right. Because in those places, if it's not close, then everybody can be relaxed, right? That's right. Last two questions, Nate. First, there's a lot of confusion out there in the media and chat about the role that the President of the United States plays in determining who won the election. Explain to our listeners what role the President plays. He plays no role. That's exactly <laughs> uh, what I wanted you to say. <laughs> and so the President cannot delay the election. The President right. doesn't have a role in, you know, with the Electoral College. Our election infrastructure and system is incredibly decentralized, down to 50 states and then down to 10,000 local jurisdictions. Now. To the extent the campaign plays a role, it's likely in litigation, right? right because right. They, can, they can try to fight about the rules and try to disqualify ballots and the like. And then if there is ultimately a, what I'll call a constitutional crisis, but really is using the machinery of the Electoral College, where you could have a situation in which there are competing slates of electors that then find their way into the House of Representatives where Mike Pence actually presides over that process, well, you could see you know, if there is an ultimate resolution to these controversies, then the president and the vice president seem, would potentially play a role. Right. But um, we've never had to go through that gauntlet before. And let's hope we don't have to this time around for sure. We'll invite you back if we're close after the election. And it looks like we might be tiptoeing towards that nightmarish, very complicated scenario. We'll, we'll come back to you and, and go through those steps. But I do think the point you made, sorry to clap, I've never clapped on a podcast before, but you know, the big difference between Trump and a guy like Putin is in autocracies, the governments and the regime and the president does have a lot of control over how ballots are counted. And that separation between the lower level count and the regional and the national count, that's where a lot of mischief and stealing in elections have happened in autocracies. But in our country, because of federalism and decentralization, the president of the United States simply, even if he wanted to, doesn't have the capability to do that. So I think that's a really important point. Last question, Nate, is there anything you would recommend to voters that they can do to make sure their vote is counted and to make sure that they vote in a healthy way? Vote early, whether it's in person or by mail and preferably actually in person, but whatever, however you vote, try to vote early. And if you're going to vote on election day, try to vote in the middle of the day when it's the least crowded, because the election officials are going to be dealing with you know, a lot of problems this time. And so the more that we can do to lessen the load, I think it's important for that. Uh, and also not to make sort of worst case scenarios, self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, I think we're all concerned yes. about this election, but there is a legal regime in place to deal with these kinds of controversies and that we need to sort of trust in the state processes and the rule of law in those states in order to resolve some of the contentious arguments that we're going to be having over the balloting process. Right. 
So vote early and be patient. Those are great messages. By the way, your message about mistakes, I think is also a really important one. Just because people are making mistakes because of the extraordinary circumstances doesn't mean their intentions are somehow to steal the election. So I, I really appreciated that point as well. I actually, I appreciate everything, Nate. Uh, fantastic work that you guys are doing. Really congratulate you. Thank you for the work you're doing on behalf of the American voters. It's really important. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know your thoughts. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.